Please join me again in prayer. Gracious and holy God, thank you for bringing us to this holy week when we get to consider again what it is that you are doing in and through Jesus Christ in our lives. We ask that you would open our ears, open our eyes, help us to see again you, your spirit at work in our lives. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, my son Caleb and I have been playing a lot of chess the last couple weeks. We find that it's a good way to pass the time. And I notice that the better Caleb gets, the more fun we have, so I've been teaching him a few simple strategies and whatnot. For instance, the other day I was showing him the art of distraction, like threatening your opponent's queen while getting ready to put the king in check. That's what really makes the game fun, the plotting, the planning, the sneak attacks. I've noticed that this is familiar with fiction, too. Any kind of fiction is exciting, of course, but intentional deception, spies, bank heists, secret plots, covert operations, those kinds of narratives tend to really capture the imagination. Like with that recent movie, Knives Out, for example, it's a murder mystery that I thought was done really well. There's part of us that enjoys seeing someone get away with something. We're amused by sudden reversals of fortune, surprise endings. Pretty much every good story has some aspect of this. I bet you can think of your own example, like a, a Trojan horse or a hostile takeover of a corporation. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that the gospel has some similar themes. Our shared story as Christians is the earliest and greatest story, the story that laid the foundation for every other great work of art or entertainment. And the wonderful thing is that our story is true. It's the truth of God's quiet revolution that resonates within us as we consider the other plot lines that are all around. For God is still at work in all things, working to bring freedom and greater life to all of God's children, even when we find ourselves playing games or just watching TV. Here's how the story goes on this day at the beginning of Holy Week, the day we remember as Palm Sunday. At this point in Scripture, the people of God have been oppressed by foreign empires for hundreds of years. There was the Babylonians, then the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, now the Romans. Picture it like a World War II film set in Nazi-occupied territory, only with the Nazis having been in charge for generations. Well, in the midst of this Roman occupation, every once in a while, someone comes along to stand up to the foreign regime. Sometimes they call them prophets. Other times they're known as rebels or revolutionaries. It reminds me a little of Star Wars with, with gifted heroes who rise up against the intergalactic empire. In our story, for hundreds of years, these little rebellions have been routinely, violently crushed. The Roman Empire in particular has no tolerance or mercy for op opposition. The local politicians are more than happy to slaughter civilians in the streets if they cause problems. And yet in spite of this brutal oppression and consistent defeat, there is a prophecy, a promise, that someday a descendant of the great King David will return to take back the kingdom and set the people free. 
This Savior will be called the Messiah, meaning the Anointed One. And the implications will be cosmic. It's like in the Matrix with Neo as the Chosen One who is destined to alter the very nature of reality itself. Only in this story, our story, it has been foretold of this Son of David that He will usher in an age of peace where there will be no more sickness or disease, no more death or violence or suffering of any kind. Can you imagine? All of God's people are awaiting this Messiah, this Savior, to come and defeat the Romans and set all things right. Well, word on the street is that there's a new challenger in Israel this year. A man named Jesus, which means salvation. Apparently, he's not much to look at, not impressive as one would expect a Messiah to be. There's not much money in his bank account. His family isn't well known or politically connected. You might say that Jesus is somewhat of an underdog, this backwater rabbi. It's an underdog story. But this Jesus is also said to be somewhat of a miracle worker, a healer, so he's got gifts. And he has developed a significant following. In our age, Jesus would probably be a social media celebrity, but in this story, it's enough that crowds, real crowds, follow him wherever he goes. Because we know that crowds have power, political power. This Jesus could could indeed lead an uprising against the government. The crowds could even try to make Jesus a rival king to Caesar. So it's also like in Game of Thrones, with Jesus' popularity threatening the legitimacy of the Lannisters. Or maybe Jesus is more like a a new presidential candidate who has entered the race late in the game. Yes, Jesus is a rising star who could come from behind and sweep the election. No one knows what's going to happen with this man they're calling the new son of David. And so everyone's talking about him. On the street, in the temple, even in the court of the governor. What is this Jesus person going to do with his popularity? It all comes down to the festival of the Passover when crowds stream into the capital city to celebrate how once upon a time God had set them free from slavery in Egypt. Some of the people come with great hope, great expectation. What will happen this year? Will God deliver the people again? Now the regional governor, an official named Pilate, he's aware that this is a tense time. Local rebellions are common during the week of Passover. So Pontius Pilate has his imperial force at the ready. He puts on his gold-plated armor. He mounts his war horse. He begins an official procession into the city, a show of force meant to intimidate any would-be messiahs. Meanwhile, on the other side of the city, Jesus, the underdog, the people's prophet, he also makes a move. Jesus also sends for a horse But Jesus' animal is a young horse, a colt that's never been ridden. Maybe this is symbolic of the fact that Jesus is meant to be a new kind of king, a different kind of king. And it's not even a war horse that Jesus rides 
one that's proven in battle. Jesus doesn't seem interested in any of that. This animal is so humble looking that some people think it's a donkey. Either way though, when word comes to the owner of the young horse, it doesn't matter. The messenger says that the Lord needs it, and that's all the man needs to know. The Lord, he says, the Messiah, the son of David is here. That's how word spreads like wildfire wildfire throughout the city that the new promised king is riding into town and the people are stirred with emotion. Pilate's parade is, is all but forgotten as the crowds assemble to greet this Jesus, this Savior. At last, they say to one another, our prayers have been answered. The revolution is here. As Jesus rides into town, they cut branches from trees and they wave them in greeting. They throw their own clothes on the ground to cover the dust and filth of the streets so that the chosen one will have a smooth path into the city. Hosanna, they cry, which means God save us. Son of David, they shout, have mercy on us. And as Pilate's procession ends at the palace, Jesus makes his way to the temple of God, which is the true seat of power for Israel. And once there, Jesus looks around at his father's house, considering what is to come. How all of this, he says to his disciples, is about to come crashing down. He considers how the next day he will turn the tables on the religious authorities and kick out the exploitative moneylenders. And that's just the beginning of his subversive plot. Now we, who've, we who have read the whole story already know what happens this week. This procession of palms, this street theater, it's partly just a distraction. It's a ruse. Like casually threatening a piece on a chessboard in order to create a diversion. Yes, Jesus is the one true king. But he hasn't come to deliver the people from the Roman Empire. Jesus doesn't even seem that concerned about Pilate. Jesus has, has a bigger opponent in mind. He's playing a more complicated game. His is a more masterful gambit. Like Kaiser Sose and the usual suspects, Jesus' last play changes everything. Everything in the story. And yet, unlike with a, with a criminal plot, Jesus doesn't even really hide what he's up to, at least not from his disciples. He tells them the plan plainly. They just don't believe him, or at least they don't understand what it is that he's doing. After Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, he continues teaching and feasting with his disciples as, as kings are free to do. At one of these meals, a woman comes in and breaks a jar of expensive perfume, and she then ceremoniously dumps it over Jesus' head. There's fragrant oil spilled everywhere, an overwhelming scent of flowers. And you'd think this would be disturbing, the smell, the mess. And yet King Jesus welcomes it. He's, he's not upset at all because this is, after all, how kings are crowned with oil. 
That's what Messiah means, anointed. Christ is another translation of this. So, so this, this woman christens Jesus as the Savior of her people. The culmination of the Palm Sunday Parade. It is a beautiful act of prophetic devotion. And yet others at the dinner, they criticize her for this ritual action. They say she, she shouldn't have wasted that perfume. They say that instead she should have contributed it to the royal treasury so that the new king could use it to help the poor. That's also what good kings do, of course. They collect taxes to care for the poor. But we know that Jesus, he hasn't really come to Jerusalem just to fight poverty. Of course, that's also a good thing to do, but, but it seems like Jesus has bigger goals in mind. His opponent is worse even than poverty. Worse than poverty. Can you imagine? So Jesus rebukes this woman's critics. Instead, he praises her. He says to them, You all can and should help the poor anytime you want. But this woman has anointed me for burial. And that's more important because that's what I came for. For burial, not, not even just for coronation. Jesus doesn't just give perfume or money to the poor. He has come for something greater. He's come to be the king who dies for his people. Jesus is the one who gives them and us his, his very life, his very self. I wonder if this woman understood what those other disciples had missed or if she just got lucky. Either way, Jesus says that her story also will be told, the story of her generosity, how she helped Jesus make his ultimate move, sacrificing himself in order to save the entire world. These things we continue to read about and to proclaim in memory of her, she who became an accomplice of Jesus. Today I invite you to put yourself in this magnificent story. Knowing what you know now about how Jesus ultimately did overcome the world. To whatever extent you can see Jesus' master play, how he confronted the powers of sin and death and beat them at their own game you who have already heard the whole drama and seen echoes of it in so many other stories all around us, this Holy Week, I invite you to go back and consider it again, like you would watching Memento or The Sixth Sense for the second time. Go back and notice how Jesus plays with his opponents, how Jesus subverts the status quo, how Jesus even changes the rules of the game so that we might also be changed, transformed, made new. And while you are there, I invite you to consider what it is that you might still be likely to miss in the midst of this drama. For example, if you were in the story of Palm Sunday, would you be more likely to be at Pilate's parade, hanging on every official word of the authorities? Or would you be in the street throwing your cloak before Jesus, the promised Christ? 
Or if, if someone came to your door saying, the Lord needs your house, or the Lord needs your car, or the Lord needs your mask, the Lord needs it, what would you say? Would you respond with joy, or would you perhaps scoff in cynicism or disbelief? Perhaps it would be easier to hide in fear, remembering what happened to the last Messiah, as well as those who followed him. Or finally, how about this woman who anoints Jesus with expensive perfume? Would we today see that gift as a waste? Would we also grumble along with the disciples saying, we should be helping the poor, the sick, the elderly? Or would we instead lift up our palms to Jesus, who was and is the Lord of the poor and the sick and the elderly? Friends, just as with those first crowds and first disciples, there are so many ways that we continue to reject Jesus, or at least to misunderstand him. His ways are not our ways. The thoughts of the master chess player are not our thoughts. And yet still Jesus goes to the cross for us. Still he intercedes for us. He plays the game and wins for us and for our salvation. He does this for us no matter where we find ourselves in the story. For it is Jesus, not us, who overcomes the powers of sin and death. It is the King of the eternal kingdom, our sneaky Savior, who loves us to the very end and beyond. This is why we praise Him this day and every day. This is why in the end every knee shall, be shall bend and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ truly is Lord to the glory of our God in heaven. Amen? Amen.